Good morning, good morning to you and you and you. Yeah, and you. Um, A little burst of song there. We don't have a theme tune. Why would we? This isn't a podcast. Um, But I thought... I thought I might just wake you up by singing to you. Of course, if you're listening to this and it's not the morning, that was inappropriate and I apologise. Walking through a wood, as it goes. Um, the oak leaves are brown and soft under feet. My feet, also the dog's feet. Pause, if anything. Um, mid-morning autumnal sunlight is passing through the trees their branches and whatnot and it's actually quite a pleasant effect gotta say i'll level with you it's pleasant um i can hear a plane going overhead i can hear the distant rumble of a motorway i believe the m3 uh in the background what better a situation to be in when i'm going to go through some of the questions uh that the subscribers to my Substack, you lot asked this week uh, it would be a while since we'd done an ask me anything and i thought it would be a nice thing to do also someone suggested it and i'm very suggestible um any news what can i tell you not really do you want to do you want any more of a visual setup i think we've got it haven't we i'm wearing a brown jumper a uh, a padded blue gilet for warmth uh, a pair of yoga shorts because i've just done my uh sun sals and so on <clears throat> and some sunglasses a prescription i get a headache if i don't wear prescription glasses these days um it is quite sunny even though it's november uh, but one of the little nose pads of the sunglasses has fallen off so on the right side of my face they leave a small indentation in the bridge of my nose there you go that's all you're getting let's uh, let's, let's get down to business this is episode 24 of the voice note called first draft uh thank you to all of you for listening and thank you particularly to the subscribers for uh posting these questions if you want to be a paying subscriber and get all the privileges of posting questions and getting exclusive things like the film review of the richard iii film that we did the other week just for the subscribers you know what to do hit the button all right but let's get let's get on with the questions because there were loads of them and they were great um where do, where do we even start? Let's start with your friend of mine, Patricia Gotthard. Patricia says, what about expanding on Matilda not becoming queen upon her father's demise? Like the Baron's promised, capital letters now, the lying liars. <clears throat> I think we're talking about Matilda, the Empress Matilda, um, daughter of Henry I, mother, as it would turn out, of Henry II. And if you've been listening to me podcast, I do actually have a podcast, it's called This Is History, and the first season on there is called A Dynasty to Die For, it's about the early Plantagenets, Henry II, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Uh, Patricia, I think, may have been uh, inspired by listening to the first episodes of that. There are 24 of them in total. Go find them on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, what is this then about Matilda not becoming queen? Henry the Henry the First had lost his only legitimate son, William the Etheling, um, on the white ship in eleven twenty. When he died in eleven thirty five, why didn't Matilda, 
his legitimate daughter, whom he had nominated as his successor and made, forced the barons on several occasions to swear homage to, why wouldn't she become queen? Well, in a word, woman. Um, that's that's the problem. You know, the, the, the it's one thing to swear an oath under duress or even just because he asked to a living king, that being Henry I. Um you know, even if you think that the, the consequence of that oath might be a little unusual and, and difficult to um, see through, that's one thing. Actually seeing it through um, in the the sort of the political reality of Henry being dead is a different thing. And the barons effectively were given a choice. Uh, they weren't given a choice when Henry I was alive... He told them they had to swear homage to his daughter. But once he was dead, all bets were off. There was a choice between Matilda and her cousin Stephen, who had, you know, a, a sort of vaguely plausible claim to the throne. Uh, plausible enough in an age where there was still quite a strong elective component to monarchy. Uh, and he moved quickly and presented himself as an alternative to Matilda. And then you have... Uh, a stark political decision to make. And it's nothing really to do with who's got the better claim on paper. It's, it's to do with who's, who do you rate as the more likely... Because, uh, God, a gigantic fox just ran in front of me with a little white uh, splodge on the end of its bushy tail. Don't see that every day. Where was I? Can't remember. Oh, yeah, look, you've got to choose. And here, here are the basics of medieval monarchy in the 12th century you've got to be able to dispense justice and you've got to be able to uh, defend the kingdom which in practice means military leadership and military leadership in this age is is gendered male that's just the fact of it so for a woman to step into that role is not impossible but it's it's uh, difficult by an order you know at least an order of magnitude when compared to a man even a useless man Stephen wasn't a useless man but he was he's definitely uh, a sort of beta male let's say as is as is proven when he comes up against Matilda's son Henry II later on so the barons didn't see through their oath because um, they ranked uh, what they saw as political expedience higher than um, the obligation of their promise. That's what it comes down to. Here's Lacey Bennett. My question, says Lacey Bennett, is gruesome and sadistic. Good grief. Tell you what, I was reading, um, for the purposes of television, an extract from the Marquis de Sade's 120 Days of Sodom this week. Marquis de Sade being where we get the word sadistic from that's some that's some gross disgusting depraved business i'd never read any of it before i mean i just it was one of those things i thought i'd read but i hadn't it's appalling genuinely appalling it's worse than the human centipede if you can imagine that um but i haven't seen the human centipede so i hadn't seen i hadn't read 120 days of sodom i hadn't seen the human centipede but if you'd asked me like last week, I would have told you, yeah, I've seen The Human Centipede and I've read 120 Days of Sodom. Now I can say I've read a bit of 120 Days of Sodom. And believe me, I don't want to read any more. Anyway, back to Lacey Bennett. 
Uh, what are the top 10 gruesome deaths in history? And if you had a choice, which one would you have chosen if you yourself must choose your execution based from your top 10? Do you think mental torture, like Marie Antoinette hearing her son being beaten, hearing the crowd howling for blood, witnessing other deaths and being humiliated while going to the execution site, was worse than, let's say, the execution of the Romanovs when the mind tricks were played, the non-stop shooting from then finding someone not, not dead, then stabbed? I think we see what uh, what Lacey's getting at. Um, I haven't had... uh, I don't think I'm going to reel off my top ten here. I obviously haven't done any preparation for this whatsoever. Clues in the name. It's the first draft. Top ten... Well, I mean, you're putting... I think I'm going to just spitball a few. I think I'm putting Rasputin up there, aren't I? Um, I think I'm putting Edward II be not Edward II sorry um well maybe Edward II if we believe the that he was red hot poker up the butt but I think that's probably not quite what happened um but let's say the mythical death of Edward II red hot poker up the butt um what I was actually going to suggest was the real death of uh the younger dispenser um disemboweled on a scaffold had his had his old knob burned on a fire in front of him uh you know hanged then cut down then chopped all sorts of 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 badness just generic hang drawing and quartering other gruesome deaths um what what about matilda de bruise under king john starved to death with her son in the dungeons of corf castle Supposedly, when the, the door of the cell was open, she was sort of there, there. They were found dead. She was attached to his face, having tried to gnaw off a chunk of his cheek to allay her desperate hunger. <clears throat> They're all making my top ten. I realise I haven't given you the full ten, but uh, that's some starters. What do I want? I don't want any of them. Thank you. All the same. Um, I, but I think give me Rasputin. I mean. Give it a good try, and I'm just going to mug you off by surviving a lot. I, I kind of want the story of me, if if it has to, if I have to go out this way, to be hard to put down. Um, on to Ryan, from the grotesque to the ridiculous. Was Roland the Farter, the infamous Henry the Second? At sorry, was Roland the Farter, that being one of Henry's entertainers, uh, a man who could sort of do incredible farts? On demand. Uh, at the infamous Henry II Christmas feast when he was screaming about Beckett. So we're December 29th, 1170. Uh, well, we're not. We're, we're, yeah, we're pre-December 29th. We're Christmas time, 1170, Henry II. Beckett's been just really annoying him. Uh, he, he gets all... all wrothy about Beckett. Uh, the four knights go to England and kill Beckett. Was Roland the Farter there? Don't know. Next... Um, but Rome the Farter is a Don character. And if I'm making the costume drama of Henry II and the early Plantagenets, believe me, Roland the Farter is getting several comic turns per episode. In fact, the series is called Roland the Farter and Henry II just turns up now and again. Um, da, 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 da. Hmm... Please assign... Here's Julia Dietz. Please assign yoga poses to Eleanor of Aquitaine, King John, Richard III, Henry II and Henry V. Well, that's uh, 
that's an eclectic assortment of monarchs to assign yoga poses to. Um, goodness. Well, let's start with... Oh, you haven't given me Richard the, the Lionheart, have you? You haven't given me Richard the Lionheart. That would have been such as a, uh, a gimme. I think let's start with your friend of mine, Richard III. Uh, you're going to want to play on the curvature of the boy's spine. So it's going to be a backbend. Uh, do I have to make up yoga pose names? No, I don't think I do. just have to match a yoga pose with one of these monarchs. So Richard III, got to be a backbend. What about camel? Yeah, camel for Richard III. Um, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Humdy dumdy dum. Could be quite uh, quite fierce. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Uh, 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 uh. I, I don't know why I'm drawn to uh, Cobra for Eleanor of Aquitaine. I don't know why. I don't know why. It, as I say it, I feel like it could even be misogynist that I think that. Why do I think that I think that I think that? I don't know. But let's give Eleanor of Aquitaine Cobra for reasons I haven't yet worked out. Um, Henry V is, is a warrior pose, obviously. Uh, it ain't peaceful warrior. Let's give him... wonder what warrior five is. <laughs> uh, let's give him warrior two. The man's balanced. He's, uh, he's, he comes from a strong base. Um, there's a playful... Uh, lightness about him when he's, you know, bantering about tennis balls uh, or in his youth as Hal. Um, but God damn it, this is a warrior. Henry the Jar, Henry the Second, Henry the Second, politically uh, extremely flexible. Um, very. So like, I'm going to give him. One of those where you, what's the one where you have to put your leg over your shoulder? I don't know what it's called. Do you know the one I mean? It's one of those that I can't do like at all. You've got your leg over your shoulder and you're sort of grabbing it, and I can't remember. It's 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 an absolute disgrace. I'm I've forget about it. I can't do it. But that one, leg over the shoulder. Um, and King John. Whoa. Hmm. I'm drawn to Crow. I'm drawn to Crow for King John, and I don't really know why. Why do I think King John is uh, Crow practice? Maybe because it just sounds mean. Okay, that was kind of interesting. Um, Connor Lassie doesn't have a question, just wants to tell me that the, my podcast aforementioned uh, is great. Um, cool. Shall I read out the praise? It's more or less stuff you covered before, says Connor. Uh, being in my book Plantagenets, I suppose. Uh, but you're really having fun with it, and you can really see, or rather hear, how writing fiction has helped you craft the stories you're sharing each week. Thank you, mate. Nice one, mate. Um, sorry. Oh, th- th- thank you, Connor. That's very interesting that you say that writing fiction has uh, influenced writing non-fiction, because lots of people have been asking me this when I've been on book tour for Essex Dogs, the novel... How do I think fiction will affect writing non-fiction? My conclusion, when I was, I was talking to Sirencester in the Cotswolds on Saturday night, just gone, and my conclusion was basically, don't know, uh, brackets, or maybe this was... Oh, it doesn't matter where I was saying it, but I was saying that don't know in terms of words on the page, uh, in terms of 
I think it's just part of a general development of writing craft to be able to do different styles. I think fiction's helpful. But interesting, you, you think you've noticed it. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Connor. Glad you're enjoying the old poddy. Uh, not really an advert, but if you've if you missed what the podcast is, it's called This Is History, and the first series is called A Dynasty to Die For, so you can go and check that out if you want. But you don't have to. Uh, but you should. But you don't have to. But if you don't, I won't, we won't be friends anymore. I will break up with you via text. Um, who were the medieval historians you looked up... This is Lydia Rogers now. Who were the medieval historians you looked up to and idolised throughout your journey of becoming one yourself? Who's my sensei, man? Uh, was there one book that grabbed you... What was it? Uh, who specialised in the early Middle Ages? Would I recommend? Okay, reverse order. I would recommend for the early Middle Ages Peter Heather. She's got a book about Christendom out. He's written about the barbarians. Peter Heather is a is a don. He can really write, uh, uh, but he also um, is, a, is a very very serious academic. So I, I'd go Peter Heather on the early Middle Ages. Um, medieval historians I idolised and looked up to. Well. I had no thoughts of being a medieval... I've told this story many times before. I've no, I had no thoughts of being a medieval historian until I just ticked the box saying I wanted to study medieval history when I was an undergraduate uh, because I couldn't think of anything better to do. Uh, but I was taught by Helen Castor, who I'm sure lots of you will have read or seen on telly or heard on the radio. Uh, she's amazing. Um, I really looked up to her and idolised her when she was teaching me when I was, like, 18. Um... She, in turn, had been taught by Christine Carpenter, now retired professor of English medieval history at Cambridge, who then taught me, who, again, was uh, was someone I massively, massively respected, uh, learned almost everything from. Uh, those, so that's what's going on. And then that, that, the, the traffic's getting louder. Can you hear it? Sorry about that. Um, th- they, in turn, had been influenced by uh, Bruce McFarlane, K.B. McFarlane, the Oxford medievalist of the uh, previous generation. Oh, here come another two dogs. There might be a thing with these dogs and my dog. I hope there isn't. But we are going down a small pathway and these dogs will have to interact with one another. Um, hold on, I'm going to pause this and come back to you. OK, back in the game, there was no disaster there. Um, but the owner of the dogs said... Well, I, was, I wish I'd carried on recording, actually, because the owner of the dog said in a comical way, how are you in shorts? Um, she was rubbing her... The, the, she had her arms folded across her body and she was rubbing the, her upper arms because of the chill. Uh, and I looked like a moron wearing shorts. Um, fair comment. It was funny. But maybe not that funny. Um, who were we with now? Uh, Helen Edwards says, I have a horrible feeling this is a daft question. No daft questions, Helen. Um, Well, there are, but I don't think this is going to be one of them. Uh, I'd be wondering about the oft-quoted maxim that history is written by the winner. So much present-day strife seems to come from the losses suffered by countries and their people, even from centuries past. Is history really dominated by the battles won or the battles lost? Great question. That's the opposite of a daft question. That's That's what's the opposite of daft. I don't know. Clever. Uh, that's a dope question. Um, dope is not the opposite of daft, but it, 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 it sort of alliterates. Anyway, let's return to the point. Yes, I, th- I mean, I think that there is this trope that history um, 
is written by the winners, but often history is written by the losers uh, in an attempt to gain a different form of victory, I think. Uh, we mentioned Thomas Beckett earlier on. Um, Beckett, you, Beckett's death, you might say, was a form of victory for Henry II, right? He gets rid of the, uh, the archbishop who's been doing his nut for so long. He's caused him immense amounts of trouble. And were history written by the victor in that case, we would all have a very, very negative view of Beckett and see Henry II's expedient um, murder of him as being sort of fair game. Fair for the chase, as Uncle says in uh, War and Peace. Uh, But we don't, do we? Because Beckett's acolytes and followers uh, got to work uh, on, on... writing stories of his life, sort of hagiographical accounts of um, his works and casting Henry as the villain. So, in fact, the story of Thomas Beckett and Henry II, and I only mention it just because we've been talking about it a minute ago, um, is a good example of history being written by the losers. So, hmm, it is interesting... It is certainly very interesting. Just trying to think. I, I was going to think of another example, but I, I, we could. You, you can think of one. You can think of examples yourselves. Uh, talk amongst yourselves and think of an ex- another example. Present it to the class. Uh, the sort of broader point, I suppose, about now is that there is across. Uh, I, I want to say society as a whole, but that's not true. Across. Western in, in Western intellectual circles, there is um, currently a fetishization of the marginalised and victimised um, that amounts almost to uh, an intellectual pathology. Um, we're just obsessed with stories of the downtrodden, weak, marginalised, uh, abused, and harmed. Um, and I'm not saying that I, we should have no sympathy with the causes of people past and present who are marginalised, far from it. Um, but there is a sort of weird intellectual obsession with it at the moment um, that's, that amounts to an academic vogue, I think, and in some cases springs from a real sensitivity and care and in a lot of other cases just springs from sort of intellectual torpor, laziness and willingness to follow the crowd. Um, so, yeah, that's what I think about that. History of the losers is the, the, the current thing um, for lots of different reasons. Uh, some of them good, a lot of them quite hollow I think um who else who else who else who else who else humby dumby do sorry I'm trying I'm rifling questions here uh Jerichet, was Henry VIII's destruction of the monasteries and other religious buildings one of the worst cultural crimes in history? Whew, that's a good one. That's a good one. 
does it amount to, let's say, the equivalent of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem? Hmm. I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I don't have a list to hand of, uh, you know, ranking greatest cultural crimes. Let's just say that I think that it's one of the worst bits of cultural vandalism in British English history. Uh, although, don't forget that there was a sort of big second wave of it in the 17th century under Cromwell's mob the Taliban oh, um, yeah I think we're, we're very much the poorer in many ways we're very much the, the, you know the, the, there were some benefits to the, the Reformation right there were some they played an important role in cultural advances in, in other directions but it's very hard to visit the ruins of those great monastic buildings and not feel that some great ill was perpetrated on the fabric of the country by Henry VIII's, with Henry VIII's approval, uh, and by the agency of men like Thomas Cromwell. Very hard to, you know, to go to those like fountains or Rivo or... Byland's Abbey up in Yorkshire and not feel like that, I think. I think. Right. Um, I've got a problem here, which is that my my right hand in which I'm holding my phone is now... It's, it's gone through numbness with cold and it's into the Reno syndrome phase of, uh, of... of, like, burning agony in the ends of all my fingers... Um, those of you with the old Reynos will know what I'm talking about. Uh, Shannon Black says, wants uh, to know, she just finished reading The Perfect King by Ian Mortimer, which is about Edward III, uh, and has read the appendix in which Ian Mortimer lays out his claim that Edward II didn't die in 1327-8, that he was in fact... Uh, spirited away there was a fake body put in a sealed coffin um, he was gotten out of the country that Edward III met him at a later point on the continent that he then went and lived out the rest of his life as a, a sort of hermit friar type person I think in Italy isn't it and uh, the, the copy the contents of the Fies- Fieschi letter outlining this weird and wonderful post-life, post-reign life of Edward II are accurate and true. My feeling is that this is a very, very problematic um, line of argument uh, that nobody at the time took very seriously. Uh, If you want the sort of blow-by-blow rebuttal-slash-deconstruction of it, I think... I think it's Seymour Phillips' biography of Edward II is the one that you want to go and have a look at in the Yale Monarch series. That deals with it fairly extensively. Trying to think who else has unpicked that argument. Uh, It may may also be Mark Ormrod in his Edward III Yale biography, but I don't think it is. I think it's Seymour Phillips. Um, 
I, I, it all, it's just, it relies on an awful lot of peculiar supposition uh, and not really any realistic thinking about how politics actually works. That's my feeling about it. Um, I mean, it's fun theory, and I thought about playing with it. Uh, I thought I'm, I'm writing the sequel to Essex Dogs at the moment, and I thought about trying to sort of massage things a little bit so that uh, really alive Edward II at the age of about a thousand turns up. But it just seemed too too hokey, and too, you'd have to do too much fiddling with chronology. You'd have to extend it, the bounds of his supposed afterlife by another five or six years, so I didn't do it. Um, but it's, it's a great theory for fiction, but I think that's, that's where it's best left. Um, humby dum. Okay, one more, because genuinely, uh, I'm about to start crying because my fingers hurt so much. Uh, who have we got? Okay, Carly Gibson. Last one, Carly Gibson. I keep reading that King Charles plans to be not just defender of the faith, but also defender of faiths. Do you think this is a tenable position he will be able to realistically... This is King Charles III, uh, current king. Can, will he be able to realistically maintain this? Can the head of the Church of England not only support but defend other religions in the realm? Great question. Where does this title, Fidei Defensor, Defender of the Faith, come from? It comes from Henry VIII's reign. Henry VIII wrote uh, Assertio Sept- uh, Septum Sacramentorum, Defense of the Seven Sacraments, which, well, he didn't write it. He sort of had a load of clever people write it and kind of tweaked it a bit. Um, going up some steps now. Uh, hence my slight change in... Uh, and I've become a bit more breathy. They're very steep steps. Anyway, so, Assertio Septum Sacramentorum, Henry VIII gets the title Defender of the Faith from the Pope. Why does he want it? Well, he wants something that will put him on a par, as he sees it, with the, the monarchs of Spain, United Spain, who are known as the Catholic monarchs, and the kings of France... Uh, Rex Christia, Christianissimus, uh, Les Rois Très Chrétiens, the most Christian kings. Well, Henry feels like he wants an English version of that, so Defender of the Faith is what he manages to negotiate from Rome pre the Reformation. And for some, well, it sort of then fits with the Henrician and post Henrician churches where the king is. In Henry VIII's case, Supreme Head, and Elizabeth I's case, Supreme Governor of the Church of England. So, Fidei Defensor, we've sort of kept. Now, in its modern context, that's squarely what it refers to, the role of the monarch as the head, specifically, of the Church of England. And as the Church of England is constituted, and as the United Kingdom is constituted, it makes perfect sense within its own terms... Um, that's the role of the monarch. Why would you want to be defender of all faiths? Well, because it's sort of uh, blandly on trend with 
the way of the modern world, which is to be nice or pretend to be nice to absolutely everybody, and with the way of the modern monarchy, which is to try and be as inoffensive as possible to the point uh, of meaninglessness. Um, so it's, I, you know, there are two ways of looking at it, I think, this desire to be defender of faiths. One is to say, well, this is just another example of the monarchy wishy-washying itself into oblivion. Um, there's another way of looking at it, which I think probably fits somewhat better with the apparent character of the king at the moment, which is that it's actually extremely arrogant. Um, you know... What the fuck... Sorry. <clears throat> what business does the king have in asserting his own right to, to be the defender of all faiths within his realm, all people of faith? One's natural reaction might be, fuck off. I want you to be my defender. I don't know. I mean, I was raised within the Church of England in a very, very bland way. Uh, and it's, it's a sort of assertion of a really quite grand and powerful position within one church to that position within not only all, all Christian churches within your realm, but all faiths completely. That's, uh, so it's, it's deep arrogance masquerading as um, benevolent humility. Um, which is a particularly noxious combination, if you ask me. Uh, so, um, I d- and I, I also think, I, yeah, it may well be untenable. Who knows, though? Who knows? That's the thing about history. You never know what's coming round the corner to smash you in the face. Uh, which is probably a good point to leave this on. Thank you for all your questions. Sorry if I didn't get round to yours. Um... But that was, that was good fun, I thought. Um, I've got to go to the deli now and buy some, um, buy some ham, as it happens. Uh, be well. I hope everyone... Thank you to all of you who are enjoying the podcast. Thank you to everyone who's been enjoying the novel Essex Dogs. I've got the sequel, Wolf Moon, coming up uh, this time next year. Um, there's lots of other exciting things. I'm filming a TV show at the moment as well. That's very, very good fun. Um, so there's loads of stuff coming up. And uh, you will hear about it here first on the old Substack. Um, do please subscribe uh, if you can. It, uh, it helps me... What does it help me do? Do this. It helps. Please subscribe. It helps me do this. What a great calculus. What a great sales pitch. Google, Google, please. Google, please help me do this. There you go. That's as good as it gets, I'm afraid. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. That's all that matters, really, isn't it? At the end of the day, me. (laughs) Me and my enjoyment. Uh, Go on, then. Off you pop. I'll speak to you soon.